You're listening to the oneofus.net podcast network. One of Us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio-based or banner ads, but on a case-by-case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at 2 5 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of us needs and appreciates all your support. Why, hello, good Sir John. Hello, Chris. <laughs> How art thou this beautiful day? Chris, I'm dying. What? I'm di- dying of the COVID. That's no good. You got to stop that. Why would anyone choose to die of the COVID? I just wanted to see what it was like. <laughs> well, what is <laughs> Hashtag it Hashtag like? FOMO. What is it like? Uh, it's It, it was like uh, it, was, it was like having a, a plague <laughs> for, for a brief period of time. Did you have boobos? Uh, I had uh, I had Captain Trips. <laughs> it's a little. It was a little. It was like a a, a slightly worse version of Captain Trips. So but are you just, are you having dreams of Whoopi Goldberg out in California though? Yeah, but that that's normal. That's the typical. Like Fair. that's a good night's sleep. Fair that enough. That has nothing to do with <laughs> pandemics. I'm on the mend. Lest any uh, lest any listener become gravely concerned. Uh, I am on the mend, but it has it has uh, it has made us like two ships passing in the night, and then passing in the next night, and then passing in the next night, and the night after that. Yeah, our ships are delayed the way airlines are these days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we're finally getting to digital noise. We're ready to take on some titles, Sir John. Thank you for joining me, even if it's remotely to for my own protection. Um, We've got a lot of stuff to talk about this week and some weird stuff. You got kind of an uh, art and camp pack this week. I I would say so. It was, uh, yeah, it was a very, (laughs) none of of these movies, well, I can't say none of them are similar because we do have a pair of sequels, but uh, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of very different films in this stack. Well, we're going to start off with a documentary, which I know usually we don't start with something like that's dry. Let me start with something a little bit of a punch. And this one does have a bit of a punch. It's got a great title and art cover design. It's called Scarf Face. So like Scarface, and it's designed to look like Scarface, except it's Scarf Face. It's about the hot dog eating contest at Coney Island, which was the main platform for eating competitions throughout all the country. And apparently there's this whole group, the International Federation of Competitive Eating, that turned eventually into Major League Eating. Boy, the nerve on those people. And it's, you know, it gets into other things, like there's other competitions for eating as well, dumplings, tacos, buffalo wings, what have you. But hot dogs has always been the primary one for people who, you know, and this Answer the question for me. Why are people who win food eating contests always skinny? How is that? You'd think the big guy would be like a shoe in, right? Because he's got more room. But no, it's always like 
like a little tiny person <laughs> that wins and, and you're like, where are you putting it? Well, Scarface is here to answer that question for you and as well present the world of competitive eating as this deeply flawed, really competitive, really backstabby, really kind of corrupt in some examples, a uh, series of organizations. And I gotta admit, John, this is not what I was expecting when I started watching this movie, but it was kind of glorious going through it in a schadenfreude sort of way. Yeah, you can see a lot of familiar faces. Like there's, there's, you know, there's names that everybody knows. Everybody knows Kobayashi. Everybody knows uh, uh, the other guy, Joey Chestnut, uh, yeah. is the other one who's heavily featured in this. And you get to see like a lot of the twists and turns and other people who've been part of it and and people who've lost their lives that may be semi-related to the competition. And um, I felt like the movie itself, it's an interesting subject. I felt like it was not particularly focused. It kind of, it kind of, it follows whatever, I guess it could grab footage from. And the footage is, can I just say atrocious? Yeah. Like, yeah. The movie looks like an MPEG from like 15 years ago. The footage that they choose to use and cut in. So if they're filming it themselves, you might get some decent, uh, you know, it's, it's on DVD, so it's 720p, but like you get some decent, like high def footage of, you know, whatever subject that they have access to at any given time. Other than that, everything is built out of other people's interviews, news clips, and everything looks like it's second or third generation like they didn't even go back to the source like they didn't go to abc and say hey can we use this footage that you did of nathan's hot dog contest it's like they went to somebody's youtube rip of it <laughs> right and then ripped at that themselves it's so bad looking it's such a it's such a bad looking documentary but also it's kind of like you know, if you had a bunch of Legos in front of you and you were asked to build, let's say, a space shuttle, but you didn't have space shuttle Legos, you had, like, Legos from a bunch of different kits, you could build a space shuttle, but it's going to have, like, one wing is blue and one wing is yellow and it's shaped different on this side and this side's kind of funky. And I felt like the movie was, because they had to assemble it, it felt like out of everyone else's scraps. I don't feel like it had a really strong thesis or through line, and it would kind of start in on some subject that you thought was about to dig deeper and then not really get any deeper in that particular direction. Right. It kind of talks about how the Nathan's guy is like a, uh, a Trump right winger and that this whole thing is sort of an example of like gluttonous America, but then not really like they kind of back up from that. They don't really get deep into that or like the, the corruption stuff is like they let other people talk about it, but then they don't really like explore it any deeper than that or the deaths or the things like that, it was, um, at the end of the day, when all is said and done, I just found it to be too, it requires too much forgiveness on the audience part for mm. something that they couldn't build a through line on. Sure. I mean, it's only an hour and 10 minutes, which is good, because I, I agree that it is very sloppily made, very amateurish. But here's the thing. I just knew next to nothing about all of the stuff. So for me, I'm watching going, oh, my God, they just keep dropping more bombs of stuff. But anybody who I expect, even with the tertiary involvement or interest in this world, probably knows all of these things and will be like, when is this going to show us something we haven't seen before? 
So if you're like me and you're like, I have no, people really do make a living off eating hot dogs. And yes, they do quite a few, in fact, um, because there are sponsors for that. Like there is everything. Then you're going to probably find this interesting, if not annoying, that it's all such bad quality footage. But I do think it's well worth seeing if you are like me. John apparently has been following professional eating contests for years, and he's like, ah. I'm waiting for my shot, Chris. <laughs> yeah, no, you're not skinny enough, John. I'm sorry. Sorry. It's well, funny, like, no, t- my- Kobayashi, oh, the, the Japanese guy, he's like, a, he's tiny. Mm-hmm. And he just watching the footage, which is horrifying to watch eat, hot dog eating contests or any eating contest is disgusting and gross to even see. But you're just like, how are you? He's just like one on top of the other. Like they should be playing that old Lim Warner Brothers music. You know, it's like he's like a, a like a, there's if he was at the end of like a, a, a industrial thing that was just going hot dogs he's just like how 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 <laughs> you gotta think about it as like i don't even know like we as as normal humans when we hear competitive eating we're thinking of like we're comparing it to the way we eat which is we chew our food and have a meal and we enjoy the tastes and the things and we find them nourishing but we also get pleasure from it and i think for a competitive eater even though eating is the same thing that we do it's more about you're, it's competitive swallowing without puking. It's mm-hmm. sort of like, it's not really eating. They're not enjoying a hot dog. It's a thing of how many hot dogs can my, can my body take in before I explode? And learning, I guess, where that limit is and going, oh, okay, I can do 72 of these without throwing up. So I'm now a competitive eater. <laughs> well, um, yeah. No, you're right. It's 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 the most American quote sport there is, and that it's just waste and excess. <laughs> I'd like to see somebody else take a crack at it. No offense to the filmmakers, but I sure I think there's still an opportunity to do something that's uh, one nicer looking. Like that's the other thing too is maybe maybe if these guys just remade their own movie, but I I just couldn't figure why they didn't get source material for some of this stuff. But I think there's still a like King of Kong Man versus Snake style film to tell within this world, and this feels like a uh, like a rough draft of what that would be. Well, our next film is from Switzerland, and it's called Caged Birds. Now, this is a uh, modern film, but it is set in the 1980s, directed by Oliver Rees. And it is, even though Switzerland has not been in war in, I think it's like centuries or something, like forever, they're like one of the most balanced like crime countries in the world. Nonetheless, there was an awful lot of unrest in the 80s rioting in the streets when uh, there were a lot of issues uh, with their prison system being extremely antiquated and bad. This follows a apparently real guy, Walter Sturm, who was known as the Jailbreak King, who who busted out of uh, facilities many times. They just couldn't keep him. And it became a thing where every time he was caught, people would be like freeing him. He kind of become like an icon of these movements, uh, which are also anti-police brutality. But the real focus here is is an alliance between him, played by Joel Bosman, uh, and uh, Barbara Hug, 
who was a lawyer, uh, played by Marie uh, Lewenberger, who apparently has a bad kidney and is very, very bad health, but she's very, very left-wing, and she's so really involved with defending demonstrators, and specifically him, that she's really hurting herself and missing dialysis treatments by, in fact, being involved in this. And the real question ends up being, as they go through this, and she's kind of trying to help this guy... That does he really want help? <laughs> like he's kind of he's a messed up dude, and he comes from like a privileged background, but kind of threw it all away to put his middle finger finger up to the his own people, basically. Uh, you know, it's interesting that usually films like this, which is like a lawyer fighting for somebody who's being unjustly, you know, uh, imprisoned and is and then is held up as like a symbol is is kind of more straightforward. Like, yes, that person is this person, and go let's all feel very angry at injustice and this one has like brings up other weird character-based scenarios that i think really gives it some degree of momentum it's certainly not fast moving but i thought i found it was very interesting it's a it kind of reminded me of like the foreign film version of something like life of david gale or something like that where it's kind of like middle of the road Mm -hmm. but it's not it's not like it's bad bad you know yeah. It's just, I think sometimes, um, I think sometimes we uh, Americans expect foreign films to always be like really provocative and like crack our brains open and make us consider the world in new ways. And here's one that it's just like, no, it's just kind of a generic like <laughs> prison drama, sort of like legal thriller prison drama. Neither of those are correct descriptors for what this is, which is really this like quasi character piece between these two people. Um, and it is just sort of quietly down the middle of the road. It's, it's supported by decent enough performances in the service of the story of these people who are, are probably, you know, much stronger public figures in their own home country. But what's presented here to me was just a little, um, I, it was, it was just a little middle of the road. Um, and it's there's I do find it reassuring though that other countries also have their own middle of the road life of David Gale type <laughs> movies. <laughs> that there's something reassuring in in knowing that not everything that that is foreign is uh, is Oscar bait. Yeah, very true. Um, and, and like I said, I think if this is if this if you you watch more of these type of films, you're still going to like it. And it is definitely more, less interested in trying to make a point than it is about the character relationship between those two lead characters. But great performances on both their parts, certainly. Uh, both of whom have won awards in the past for their performances, but not for this movie. <laughs> but we're going to move into another art film, a Taiwanese new wave film from 1994, now getting a Blu-ray release called Vive L'Amour, a film I've certainly heard of over the years, never seen. It was the second film by director Sai Ming Liang, who is better known for uh, some of his later films like Goodbye Dragon Inn and Stray Dogs. But this is one I definitely had heard good things about it won the golden lion uh in at the 51st venice international film festival when it came out and it's an odd little quiet film about two people who are sneaking into an apartment that is being sort of temporarily lived in by a rental agent who is just kind of going through their Going through their existence, as it were. Everyone in here is just kind of going through their existence. <laughs> One of them is uh, Sao Kang, who's a salesman. 
who literally discovers a key to that apartment. It's locked and he takes it and he just kind of sneaks in one night and just sort of hides in there. Uh, although early on we see one night he tries to commit suicide by slitting his wrists and then changes his mind. Uh, the woman in question, who is the, the rental agent, Ah Jung, uh, I'm sorry, the woman is Mei Lin. Uh, originally she, we introduced to the second person sneaking to the apartment, Ah Jung, because they kind of have a meet cute. Um, they end up hooking up in that apartment and have sex uh, while Hsiao Kang is hiding in there. And basically that's the thing that makes him stop his, him from bleeding out. But he steals the, Ah Jung steals the key from the apartment and he returns and sneaks in. And it's a weird little, like there's no, there's not very much further involvement between all three characters at once so much as like, uh, there's a little short scenes of them together because the other two guys get to know each other as well and kind of become friends. And the rental agent doesn't really want to get in a relationship with this guy, but he keeps showing up, you know, outside of the apartment, as it were. I don't know. It's a very quiet film that not much happens in, but it's just so beautifully shot. And it's such a weird little situation that I did find it kind of involving, if not essential. But, <coughs> You know, I mean, not everything is for everyone. But John, what about you? Um, I it's a, kind of a mood piece, right? Oh, definitely. Like that's really what this is more than anything else. I mean, you use the word quiet. I think there are whole stretches of this, long stretches with no dialogue or very minimal dialogue, as you see these people live their lives. I think the intent is is one to make you feel like a voyeur. Yeah. Um, you feel like you are looking sort of in a, in a peephole in these three different people's lives. I think the film does a good job of what it intends to do or, or the feeling it intends to convey that voyeuristic thing. Um, it's kind of a difficult film to talk about because there isn't like some powerhouse scene or big moment. It really is just a, um, a, experiment even sounds like the wrong word to me because I don't think it's an experimental film either. It's just a matter of a filmmaker going, I want to construct something that makes you feel like you are peeping on these, these different people who are all sharing um, the same spaces. Um, And I think it does a good job of that. It is uh, pretty interesting. If you can, take things that are slow and dialogue free. And if what we're, what we're talking about sounds of interest, it will probably hold your interest, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you should expect some grand payoff or, mm. or big catharsis. It yeah, sort of none. maintains the same tone throughout. Um, I, I like this. I vibed with it. It's not going to be for everyone. Um, it is, it is probably on the artsier side of the artsy films we talk about this week. Um, but like a good piece of art, if you like it, you, you might really like it. Yeah. Um, I even found it darkly humorous, really. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of like black comedy in here. That's there like, is. Yeah. I, th- th- I was like, okay, I chuckled a few times at this and they're just, all three of them are just such lost souls, but in very different ways. And, but they're all really interesting. I don't know. I mean, again, if you, this already sounds like your sort of thing, it almost certainly is, but, uh, cause it, it was very well reviewed. I think it's genuinely a good movie, but it's not the sort of movie I'm going to be rushing to go back and see again. Uh, but I'm not that kind of person. Um, there is an interview on the Blu-ray for 28 minutes with the director and then just the trailer. 
so there's not a lot of extra bonus stuff, but it's, you know, it's a nice presentation of it. It looks really good, which it needs to. Um, yeah, you were saying about how quiet, it, about how there were long stretches, no dialogue. I think I timed it like first 22 minutes of it. There's not a single word of dialogue in it. <laughs> yeah. Just following the characters around. Anyway, yeah. Uh, vive la more. I still think worth checking out. We're going to go next to the Criterion pick of the week, which is a film, another film that's been on my list for a very long time, wanting to see the the, the China, Hong Kong film Rouge by legendary Stanley Kwan, uh, starring two legends as well, the multiple award-winning Anita Mui and Leslie Chung, uh, both of whom were, in my experience of watching Chinese films in the 90s, when they were first sort of streaming starting to come over here in our videos local indie video stores they were in almost everything i was watching <laughs> like one I was of so them. happy to see anita mui because i hadn't seen i i i was one that was devouring all those hong kong fantasy stuff like in the 90s as well and like we me and my friend we must have watched heroic trio like every single time i was over at his house and then right. uh rumble in the bronx was my first feature film with jackie chan that i ever saw and then i went back and like saw his older stuff so i was so happy to see um I need a movie again. Uh, and I didn't know she was in this. Like when I popped it on, I was just like, Oh, yay. And then Leslie Chung, who was the star of one of my favorite Chinese series, a Chinese ghost story, which is like kind of their take, like a cross between evil dead two and their, their, uh, ghost, weird ghost, ghost mythos. They're very strange and funny films. And he plays the, the lead character in all three of them. Um, but he has a very tragic story. Unfortunately, he ended up committing suicide uh, at the end of his life. But I believe be- associated with the fact that he was gay and that was not very well supported in China at that point in time. But oh. he he was so pretty. He was always playing romantic leads because he's very, very pretty man. Uh, the story takes place in both 1987 and 1930s. Uh, because this is a ghost story, but kind of a weird meta. It's a film, if it was made in America, it would be a wacky comedy. You know what I mean? The setup is for wacky romantic comedy, and that's not really where they're going here. It's more doomed drama. But in 1987, you've got this newspaper man, Yuen, played by Alex Mann, and his girlfriend, Chor, played by Emily Chu, uh, who are there. They do the advertisements at this uh, paper, like, you know, people paying for advertisement. And this woman shows up and Anita Mui, who's like, I need to place an advertisement uh, looking for a man, my lover, Chan Chen Pang, Leslie Chung. It turns out that like in the past, in the 30s, he was this playboy son of a wealthy family who wanted to be an actor. And he met Anita Mui fell in love with her in a tea house where she is not a rich person. She's an actress and a prostitute, but like definitely not that. Uh, definitely not someone her, her family, their families would approve of. Realizing that despite their love, they'd never be accepted. Basically, it was like, okay, we're going to kill our, kill ourselves by opium overdose. So she's there and she's been waiting in the afterlife and he's never shown up and she's worried. I have I lost him somehow? Is he wandering around on earth as a ghost? And she <laughs> manages to convince this couple to help her try and find her either the ghost of or whatever of her uh, ex-boyfriend. And it's a weird setup, dude, but it is kind of like tragic romantic in a touching way. Mui is just so good. She's such a great actress and it really translates past language here completely. 
Uh, I thought this was really terrific. It was a great choice for Criterion to put out. It's certainly not if you watched a lot of these films of this time that aren't that weren't by like Wong Kar Wai or something. This might not be what you were expecting from the description. There's not a bunch of people flying through the air doing martial arts. There's this little bit of ghostiness, but not very much. Most of the time, she's kind of. You know, she she doesn't appear terribly ghosty or do ghosty things. She just kind of looks like a person wearing out-of-date clothes. But yeah, I, I thought this was really terrific. You had this, like, period of time, and I honestly, like, I, I only found out just now at, at recording, I assumed that this was a response to uh, Ghost and how... When Ghost kind of came out, you ended up with things like Hearts and Souls or Truly Madly Deeply, the UK film. So good. And I was kind of like, oh, it's sort of like in that whole early 90s uh, ghost romantic drama thing that was going on. You know, movies get trends. And and this came out in 88. So it actually may have been the trendsetter here or at least uh, the canary in the coal mine for what was about <laughs> to come. Because it certainly is of that type of film that's like... A little bit light fantasy, and and again, there's like a supernatural romance, but but kept uh, somewhat light um, in some ways. Um, it's you know, if you're dealing with like the death of lovers and stuff, sometimes that can feel really heavy. But there are comedic moments in this and things. There's also heavy moments as well. But um, but it, yeah, it feels of a type of that early '90s window of. Of super of supernatural romantic dramas, uh, which was nice. I hadn't seen one that I hadn't seen. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. what did I just say? I uh, you hadn't seen, seen one, hadn't one that seen. you hadn't seen. <laughs> um, it was, but it was a nice like. Uh, it's like when you watch a. Uh, it, it's like when you watch a buddy cop movie that you hadn't seen from the time that buddy cop movies were a thing, and you're like, ah, I got the warm fuzzies because I saw a new buddy cop movie I'd never seen before. <laughs> it's like ah, I got the warm fuzzies because I saw another like ghost looking for her lover movie that they used to make a billion of in the early 90s. Um, and this was a good one. Yeah, one of the higher uh, ranked ones, certainly. This was considered to be quite good. Won a whole ton of awards across the world. Uh, and I, I think well-deserved. It is light entertainment in, in and of itself. It's certainly not doesn't feel like it's reaching all that hard for anything past what it is, but uh, I'm sure there are some undercurrents I'm missing not being a Chinese uh, a person who lives in Hong Kong. But... Uh, this is on Criterion. It looks gorgeous. And it also comes with two films fr from 1997 by the director. The film Still Love You After All These and the documentary Yang Plus Yin, Gender in Chinese Cinema. In full confession, I did not watch these. But um, both of them look at Hong Kong social and cinematic history while also considering sexual identity in uh, Chinese cin cinema and the filmmaker himself's sexuality. Um I'm going to go back and watch these at some point because I really like this director quite a bit. And those topics are actually very interesting. They come up a lot in that 80s, 90s period in Hong Kong cinema. Sexuality was very discussed underneath in the way that like sort of you would say Bride of Frankenstein is discussing sexuality, but not in an overt way, but seems more overt now that we're watching it now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it feels yeah. like that sort of same sort of thing was going on there. 
But yeah, uh, there's a new interview with Quan where he talks about his whole career. There's a booklet essay by critic Dennis Lim that uh, talks about the the film's ghost story specifically. Yeah, this is well, well worth checking out, especially if you were a fan of Chinese film or are a fan of Chinese cinema in this period. This is a, kind of a standout for this type of film from there, which there weren't a lot made in China. Like a lot of what was going on here were like cop movies or, or, uh, you know, Jet Li flying around with a giant spear or, <laughs> or the heroic trio, as you said, or Jackie Chan. And this was like a, one of the little side ones that maybe not as many people got to see here because we were looking for those other movies. <laughs> mm-hmm. And still very mainstream feeling. Like it didn't feel esoteric. You know, no. it felt like it was, it felt like it was made for mainstream audiences. Yeah, I agreed. Well, our next one is a brand new one called Charlotte. We actually had our critics review this one on the site proper. I did not have time to watch the screener of it, but they sent me a Blu-ray because they were literally the guy was like, you really need to watch this movie. It's really good. Uh, and it's an animated biographical drama about this German painter named Charlotte Salomon, who I knew absolutely nothing about, but uh, who lived a really interesting life. She's voiced here by Kieran Knightley. They got some decent voice cast for this, but it, she was a very young artist who basically was coming of age right on the verge of World War II starting to build up around them. And she was a Jewish art, uh, artist. Uh, her family was, the whole family was Jewish. And it's her sort of shuffling back and forth through various different places as her family tries to get her to not have to deal with what they saw, what everyone saw coming, you know, like them going from oppressing the Jews to murdering them while she is actively exploring her artistic side and turning out to, at least in terms of the way history discovered her, really incredibly talented and arguably the world's first graphic novelist (laughs) is their argument. Because she told this whole story of her life through just a series of paintings that were chronological. And people look at that as like, you can really read it as a story, which is interesting. Um, I think that the film is maybe overall a little bit dry, uh, but it is in terms of storytelling, but it is quite beautiful. It is a really beautiful and heartbreaking story. I mean, I, I did definitely cry at the end of it. I was like, it's, it's emotionally moving. And you've got people like Brenda, uh, Brenda, uh, Blethen voicing it, Jim Broadbent, Sam Clayfin, Henry Zerny, Eddie Marsan, Sophie Okonedo, Mark Strong. I mean, it's a, it's a solid cast of people. And the animation is gorgeous, albeit it reminded me a lot of every other animated film I've ever seen about the life of an artist <laughs> in terms of the style. I was like, yeah, they all kind of look this way. But, you know, there, and I certainly there was something here where at points it was trying to echo the artist's impressionist style. Um, yeah, I thought this was pretty good. It's pretty good. I it's It's certainly a a noble film. Um, in its, in its attempts to bring this artist's story to life. Um, and I can certainly understand why, like, the decision to do it animated was probably tremendously much more cost effective than trying to stage, like, a period piece set during World War II. So I, I understand that the desire to make it animated was probably one of budget reasons, because I also think that certainly from an animation standpoint, it's almost too limited even there in scope and scale to really either sell the feeling that her artwork gives or to bring the characters to, I don't want to say bring the characters to life. Look, a lot of the animation in this is, is characters in rooms talking to each other. 
And that's just what it is. And that's a difficult thing for animation because animation, I mean, the name of it is about movement. Yeah. Uh, and there's, there is not a lot of movement. So then, then I have to go, okay, but are they, if there's not a lot of movement, are they capturing, um, a feeling, a general feeling or an overall tone that her artwork conveys? Maybe that's the reason why. And that doesn't really come across either. I thought this was, we we talked about this before. We've had some movies recently. The uh, Zoot Suit was this way, where the execution of what was being delivered was almost muffling what something that could have been better if it mm-hmm. wasn't executed in this way. And that's kind of the way that I felt about Charlotte. Like, if it was executed differently, if I was seeing it in live action, or if the animation had more power, um, then... I could see this as being something really engrossing as it was. It kind of feels like one of those movies that they wheel into your classroom when <laughs> it's raining outside and there's a substitute teacher and it's like, okay, today we're going to learn about Charlotte. Wheel the VCR in and pop it in and everybody sits and watches this and then the class is over. Right. And I, that's, I, that's probably highly insulting to the film itself. <laughs> now that that's come out of my mouth, I'm like, <laughs> That may be that may be far too negative, but if you're if you were ever in a classroom in America that had to watch a movie like that, then you know what I'm talking about. It's sort of PBS, mm-hmm. you know. It feels a little PBS. It did make me and, wonder why they they choose to animate it when they did very little with the art form of animation in terms of reflecting the style of the artist. I thought during it, I felt like if they wanted to do those assets, and there are moments like that, but. It felt like there doesn't seem to be even budgetarily any real reason to not do this with live action and then maybe you have brief animated sequences the way they do in here that explore that style if that's what they want to go with. I mean, it's not like she was an animator. I mean, I I couldn't help but think of the the one they and I'm blanking on the name of they did one a couple years back about Van Gogh. That's amazing. It's Mm -hmm. just gorgeous and totally captures the style of Van Gogh all the way through it. It's just like jaw dropping. And this was kind of like, where is that part? Did you like structurally similar? But in terms of like, why make it an animated film? I kind of was like, I don't know the answer to that. Sometimes it's a matter of if you look at the cast list of this, it actually has like name stars as the voice cast. Mm -hmm. And when you're, I'm just guessing, I don't know anything about the production of this movie, but my guess would be that it was very, very, very low budget. And that every time they would bring a new name in, that would let, let them get a little bit more money. So they, because money chases money. So it's one of those things. Well, if you get Kira Knightley, we'll throw in this much money. And then it's like, okay, great. We got Kira Knightley. Now we're spending that much, but we got that much. And I think that's probably what held it back was a kind of a line in the sand between, well, we can either blow this up and really make it super artistic, or we can have a name cast so that we can sell this internationally. Um, and that may have been what it came down to. I'm, that's strictly conjecture. I have no idea, but this is, this is fine. You'll learn about an artist that you didn't know about before and who has an important story and who has important artwork. Um, it's just not the, greatest movie ever made it's just uh it is what it is well we're gonna move on to a 4k upgrade to a, a legendary hollywood film called giant on one of only three films featuring james dean uh and uh, an oscar winner at that 
that is a, the very example of the type of film they rarely make anymore, which is that epic sweeping family drama. I mean, usually they make a miniseries of that sort of thing these days if they're doing it. I think there was one just recently on Hulu or two or three. But <laughs> this is, as those films tended to be, a very long film. Like it even has an intermission in the middle of it because it needs it because it's 197 minutes. Uh, it's an uh, epic Western uh, directed by George Stevens, who was a big deal back in the day, who did Gunga Din and The More the Merrier, A Place in the Sun, Shane, The Diary of Anne Frank. Uh, for this, he for Giant, he won Best Director. But I know you had said you had never seen it. It's been on your I probably should have seen this by now list. And it is an intimidating watch because, like I said, it's super long. It's not the world's most exciting story, but it's got this fantastic cast of people I this is my second time watching this um and it's you know it starts in the in the 20s with a wealthy rancher played by Rock Hudson who's traveling to Texas from uh from I forget where it said he was originally from but um or no he's traveling from Texas to Maryland because he wants to buy some horses and he's talking to this rich family and he has sort of a both meet cute and meet sullen with a young Elizabeth Taylor, who admittedly, when she was, when she was like a big star, she was one of the most beautiful women in the world. And this movie really portrays that, I think, and that she had really genuine talent as well. Uh, and, but it's not long for like, okay, well, fine. They got married and she's going off to Texas with him. And there's a lot of like, conflicting like is that how you do things like texans going oh great the city girl the east coaster she won't know how to do anything and her and her kind of going like hey give me a chance here people um but this is a movie that you think you the whole movie would just be about that aspect of it right the sort of her growing into this family but no it's a like generational type film where it goes till she and her husband are old and their kids growing up and the issues with their kids which by the way one of their kids is played by a young Dennis Hopper which i thought was kind of fun um but yeah i i was really curious to know what you think of this cuz i know a lot of people who you know who li- tend to like these type of films who w- were are just not a fan of this but I was even more prepared for it this time, having seen it before. And I do think it's just a gorgeous looking film. I mean, it's shot so beautifully. It's just, there's a reason we don't really make this type of film so much anymore. It is sprawling. It's, uh, it's you know, they use the word novelistic. It is novelistic. You can definitely tell it was based on a novel that picks up and drops off through decades with these people. Um, I will say, so... Last time I was on, we did Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, mm. which is one that was a classic that I'd never seen that knocked my socks off. This one didn't knock my socks off. Um, it it was a little too... Uh, there's a lot of movie. There's a lot, <laughs> a lot of movie in this movie. Um, I think the movie comes to life the most when Jet, played by um, uh, James Dean, is in the film. Yeah. Um, he starts as a ranch hand and develops a flirtatious relationship with Liz Taylor's character. Um, and then has a lot of conflicts with, uh, um, our, our lead played by rock Hudson, um, just personality conflicts more than anything else. I mean, the flirtation thing is part of it that just adds to the tension, but I think the two are just kind of a little bit oil and water. No pun. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of oil um, stuff here. Yeah, I think they, I think these guys wouldn't have gotten along whether there was a lady involved or not. 
Um, and I think the film really comes to life and feels, uh, energized whenever the, the, the scenes are about Jet or Jet's directly on screen. And I think that when he's not, I think the film kind of lulls back to sleep. Um, which is interesting. I'd never seen James Dean in anything. This is the first James Dean film I've ever seen. So I didn't come with any preconceived notions other than an understanding that he's like an iconic movie star to this day who wasn't in a lot, you know, and it has been canonized. Uh, and there's a reason for it. Yeah. I think he's very, for the time period, they talk about like, um, Brando being very naturalistic on film. James Dean is also very naturalistic on film. Um, was one of the early adopters of like the method acting style. Um, and it basically what it translates to in, on a movie screen is you get somebody who's not coming across particularly theatrical. Um, yeah. He's uh, he's a little more lived in, and he always seems to have some bit of physical business as well that's going on. Um, I thought he was really, really, really interesting, and the rest of it was not. This is it was kind of what I expected it to be, which was like a little bit like a, I don't know. It's it's in the neighborhood or ballpark of something like Gone with the Wind, where it's this yes. big sprawling melodrama, um, and I liked parts of it more than I'd liked other parts of it, but it, as long as it is, it's like if I were to put the actual minutes I enjoyed it on a scale for the minutes that I didn't, I probably enjoyed it more than I didn't. But yeah. I didn't. I wasn't in love with it like I was Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, uh, yeah. having just come off of that one again. That uh, was one where it was just like, that was freaking terrific. Giant didn't hit me in the same way, and I was desperate for that. I was kind of hoping for it when you gave me the second stack and I saw Giant, I was like, oh, I have this other opportunity for this movie to like <laughs> an old movie I haven't seen, like knocking my socks off, and I was like, "Oh, it was actually kind of what I expected." Other than well, the stuff with Jet, which I thought was really good, and yeah, Dean is barely in the first half of this, and even in the second half, he just has some very big but very important scenes. Like one of the mm-hmm. best scenes in this whole thing is he gets this big sort of drunken like scenario, and he's terrific in it. Uh, but yeah, no, this is um both this and East of Eden are like. Both good movies, but they're not essential. Wait till you see Rebel Without a Cause. It is that one. You're like, okay, this is as good as everybody says it is. Cool. <laughs> and, and Dean really is the star of that one. But yeah, this is on 4K. Unfortunately, they've lost all the extras from the previous and now out of print Blu-ray. They're not involved. They're not included here. All there is is a vintage commentary from uncredited production Steven- assistant George Stevens Jr., screenwriter Ivan Moffat, and film cr- critic Stephen Farber. Uh, you know, apparently it's quite good. I did not rewatch all 197 minutes to listen to the commentary, but, but according to the things I'm reading, it's, it's, if you love this movie and you want to know all the little bits of trivia, it's, it's worth it for that. But we're going to move into two sequels that are being re, uh, released on one disc from Kino Lorber, although they previously had released both of them on Blu-ray separately. Uh, they're sequels to, a movie that we have reviewed previously on Digital Noise, not John, because when I handed him this disc, he's like, um, I've never seen the film that this is, these are sequels to, although I've always wanted to, In the Heat of the Night, a 1967 mystery drama directed by Norman Jewinson with Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger that was considered to be a huge deal. I mean, it's on a, a lot of top hundred 
films lists. It was nominated for seven Oscars and won Best Picture and Best Actor for for Steiger. But he's this big quote for uh, Sidney Poitier where he goes, they call me Mr. Tibbs. So this movie was big enough and popular enough. They were like, okay, well, let's go ahead and get Poitier to go in the story. He goes back to his hometown where he's a cop and it's more stories of him being a cop in his hometown. And all that being said, well, I can watch Poitier do next to anything. These are definitely cash in sequels by the very definition of the term. You know, they're like, okay, people love this character. They love Poitier. Poitier's hot right now. Let's uh, build a franchise about Virgil Tibbs doing, doing other stuff. And uh, this is him doing other stuff. The, the original one, he's like cracking a murder case while dealing with small town racism, which is interesting. And here he's, this is just basically cop movies. <laughs> it, it, like, okay, I'm going to armchair quarterback this stuff because uh, you should, Tibbs should be like Columbo. I have no problem with him continuing in the heat of the night and doing other detective stories with Virgil Tibbs, but the through line of In the Heat of the Night is that he is a black man in the racist South, yet he is a cop who's better at his job than the cops that he's come across, Mm -hmm. and they everybody underestimates him, and it's kind of it kind of helps him. It helps him solve things, the fact that everyone sort of always underestimates him. And I'm like, that's very similar to Columbo, who acts... But Columbo's deal is, I'm going to act real dumb, and everybody will underestimate me, and I'm actually really smart. Yeah. Um, But I feel like there's a Columbo aspect to this where you could go, okay, for sequels for Virgil, what we're going to do is we're going to always place him in scenarios where he's underestimated. It doesn't always have to be the racist South, but construct things that at least structurally make it similar to In the Heat of the Night, where he's the outsider... And people aren't looking at him as an equal, if not better. Hmm. And just do the sequels like that. Like, that's what you carry over. Tibbs, in and of himself, in in The Heat of the Night, all we know about him really as a character is that he's very principled. Um, He's pretty level-headed in that he's highly competent at his job. And so this tries to expand that with, like, wife and kids and seeing Tibbs at home. I also don't know where I missed, because I'm about 99.9% sure that he said he was from Philadelphia several times in <laughs> in the heat of the night, only to discover that the other movies are in San Francisco. Right. Um, and it was kind of funny. Wendy was sitting on the couch. We were watching these together, and she goes, oh, what city is this? And I said, oh, it's Philadelphia. And then it cuts to the Golden Gate Bridge, and I was like, <laughs> no, it's that's not Philadelphia. That's uh, unless... <laughs> it's like <laughs> Chicago. <laughs> yeah. Um so what you end up with here with these these two movies, and we'll, Mr. Tibbs, we'll, we'll talk about Mr. Tibbs first, which is this uh, this uh, this young woman is found dead. Um, she may have ties to this pimp. She may have ties to this evangelical political leader played by Martin Landau, and Tibbs has to kind of sort through um, the the various parties who sort of are are hovering around her mysterious death and, and come to some conclusion while he also uh, teaches his kid how to smoke cigars in the, in the, in the meantime. That was a um, weird scene. I always heard those stories of people saying, oh, yeah, my dad caught me smoking or drinking, so he made me just do it until I threw up. I'm like, did people really do that? That seems tantamount to abuse, and this is that. 
I think they call me Mr. Tibbs becomes less interesting as it goes along. You yeah. become much less vested in who the murderer is, and it, it kind of just whimpers out over its running time. Yeah. I, I was I was all for this conceptually, and then by the end of it was really disinterested. Um, yeah. And then the organization, I think, has a far more interesting premise, but is somewhat... It's you can tell that like there was decreasing budgets and things like that. So this this feels more like a kind of a down and dirty seventies action movie. But the premise of there's a group of activist vigilantes who know that there are businesses running drugs in their neighborhoods, and so they commit a series of crimes to point to these drug running businesses and get the drug running businesses in trouble because the drug running businesses are operating so discreetly that there's no way that those guys are ever going to get caught. Right. And so Tibbs becomes tangled up with the quote unquote organization. Uh, Raul Julia is one of the members you'll recognize. Um, that guy whose name I can't remember who's in Barney Miller and DC cab, uh, that character actor, I can't remember his name. He's in it. Um, and basically like Tibbs is, He's for their cause. As a police officer, he realizes what they're doing is illegal. So he's sort of like, let me be the one that connects the dots on this so that you guys don't further endanger yourselves or others. Um, and we'll try to uncover this whole thing. He almost is like a, this, this has the feeling, I don't know if you thought this, this has the feeling of a script that existed that they went, oh, we can put Virgil Tibbs in this movie. And make Virgil Tibbs the cop in this in this movie. Absolutely. It feels like it feels like something Portier may have crossed his desk and gone, oh, we'll just do a rewrite on it. And now it's the third in the Heat of the Night movie. Yeah, um, it, it also feels. I mean, both these feel very kind of TV movie ish. But I, I agree with you. It's like a much more interesting premise. But also, ultimately, I think where it's not a better made film on a technical level, it's a hell of a lot more fun to watch than They Call Me Mr. Tibbs, which, like you said, just sort of peters out. Um, that seems like it's getting to this conversation. Like, how does a policeman deal with the fear that somebody that he respects as a religious leader and as a friend might be involved in a crime? How would you mm -hmm. approach that? It feels like there's an interesting story to be told there, but Mr. Tibbs doesn't do it. It just yeah. kind of dances around doing it. Whereas this is like, oh, this actually has actions and murders and stuff is happening. You know, I mean, like you wouldn't even make an episode of Law and Order these days about just one murder. Like, <laughs> like call me Mr. <laughs> Tibbs. A hooker got killed. This is not 45 minutes of television. I'm just saying. Uh, it's certainly yeah. not almost two hours of movie. It was the organization's like, oh, there's a lot of shit going on. And some of it's a little silly, but I at least had fun watching it, even if it was kind of dumb. Yeah, it's a little bit, I don't, exploitation's like the wrong word, but it has that kind of like yeah. cheapy, that the cheapy 70s vibe that I think Tibbs still felt like very much like a studio sequel. This has a, this is a little grimier uh, organization is. Um, and I didn't get a chance to ask you because I loaned you the Criterion that they put out last year, I think it was, of In the Heat and the, the Night, and that was your first time watching another classic. What did you think of that? Oh, that was great. And honestly, like, one of the things that I really noticed is that there was a shift in cinematography that's noticeable in that movie where they're using... <sighs> There's a certain look and feel that movies have 
color color film had in the 50s and 60s where everything is very high key giant is a great example of that like everything's kind of lit the same in giant you know mm-hmm. like everything is sort of lit as if they're on a big set like everybody's like bright you know there's no and and in the heat of the night has moments of like shadow and grime and things that you saw in black and white film kind of like in a in a color situation and very naturalistic lighting as well there's scenes in the sheriff's office um, where, again, the lighting felt more real, even if it was still movie lighting. The, you know, people at their desks and desk lamps are on and light coming in from windows and things like that, where the cinematography felt very, very naturalistic in a way that would become in vogue, especially as the 70s continued. Mm-hmm. Um, none of that artful, artful cinematography was on display in either Tibbs nor the organization, no. but it just shows like the care that a, you know, the differences between directors here, you have Norman Jewison who's done like, who's done some classics, you know? So it's like a care in the way that the aesthetics are mm-hmm. of the film, a care in the way that it's cut and constructed and what shots are stitched together. It's just, it's night and day between in the heat of the night and they call me Mr. Tibbs of the organization. You know, sequels or not, it's just they aren't even aspiring to be as artful as uh, as in the heat of the night. I really liked it in the heat of the night. And, yeah. uh, and as for these sequels, I, again, it comes down to, I just don't think that the Tibbs from in the heat of the night, I think there are, Interesting detective stories to tell with that character, but I don't think that they call me Mr. Tibbs of the organization are, are good at that. You, you almost have to kind of think of them separately. Like, oh, they're just different detective stories where his name happens to be Tibbs. They (laughs) don't feel like extensions of In the Heat of the Night in any way whatsoever, other than carrying over the character. Yeah, I agree. They could almost like, like, well, Poitier is not going to do it and say like, well, screw it. We'll just do it anyway. We'll, we'll find an actor who kind of looks like him and, and put him in that role. Yeah. You know, clearly, as I said, a quick movie cash in for sure. Well, we're going to finish out with something very different and off the beaten cuff from everything we've talked about today, which is a film, this title, Bloody Muscle Bodybuilder in Hell. This is being released by Visual Vengeance, who is a relatively new company, as near as I can tell, that are releasing, it seems almost exclusively, these sort of shot-to-video or Super 8 movies from the 80s and early 90s that are lost, were, were just completely lost. At ma- and some of them just like, okay, well, we have a copy here on VHS, but this is as good a copy that exists of this. It's like most of their films come out with a warning Sorry, this is lit. I mean, there's literally nothing you can do. It's a, this is as good as we were able to get this to look. Uh, and this is no exception. We've got a, my next, the next digital noise with right. I've got another one coming up from them that I actually really enjoyed. Um, I, this is directed by Shinichi Fukuzawa. It's a Japanese film. It's regularly referred to as the Japanese evil dead. And because that's exactly what they were trying to do. There's just no mm-hmm. question when you're watching this, that this guy saw evil dead and said, I want to make evil dead, but I have no money. <laughs> and so he made this film, the 63 minute, obviously almost no budget film over the space of a decade because he kept having, he'd like work a job for a while until he had enough extra money to like shoot a few scenes. <laughs> like literally just call his stars back in again to, to like do stuff. Uh, and, 
It's like at the beginning, this guy uses a shovel to, to cut off the head of his demonically possessed girlfriend, hides his cor- her corpse under the floorboards of this house, and then it flashes to a little bit later, we meet this bodybuilder named Naoto, played uh, by uh, the, the director, who uh, is an orphan. Uh, he gets a phone call from uh, his former girlfriend, hoping that like she'll help him conduct journalistic work against a house that is reported to be haunted, the house in question. Uh, he's not over her, really, so he agrees, hoping maybe they'll hook up. But then turns out she invited a psychic uh, to come and do work with them. And uh, once they get in there, things almost immediately start going terribly wrong. Uh, the psychic gets turned into a deadite and starts coming after them. I mean... They literally even is a scene where the guy like picks up a weapon and it goes groovy. Like this is, <laughs> this is a film that knows exactly what it is. And honestly, I started off kind of like, oh, okay, am I really going to sit through this? And by the end, I was like, I mean, this is mildly charming. I can see people who are going to love this sort of thing. I understand why people love this sort of thing. This, it's filled with heart from the hard, this hard director just really wanting to make this and do it himself. Just such a big fan of the evil dead. I get it. It's, it's, I got charm. It's some of the, the micro budget slop effects are, aren't any worse than anything in the original evil dead, really. (laughs) They're really corny and obviously fake, but there's some imagination into how they did it. I don't know. It's, there's not much to it and it's really short, but if you're a huge fan of the evil dead and you have patience for this sort of thing, this might be the sort of thing that's up your alley. I also would recommend it for anybody who is, uh, if you're the kind of person who puts movies on as background at parties. Yes. This is also an excellent, excellent pick for that because (laughs) everyone will ask you all night long. What is that? (laughs) <laughs> what are you watching? What is on the screen? Um, and, and for that, this is, this is highly recommended. Uh, this was, this was caught me in the right mood, I guess. I, um, I was, yeah, I was kind of charmed by this. It's funny for something to be a ripoff and inventive at the same time, which is like, I'm going to rip off Evil Dead and I'm, I want it to be just as gory. But I'm assuming he had even less money. So it's like, then he has to be extra inventive and go, if I have less money than Sam Raimi, then how can I even make anything that looks as gruesome? Um, it's, it's got a lot of like goofy gore effects that I I really liked. (laughs) I, I dug this. It's, it's ridiculous. It goes by really quick. Um, and again, it's just kind of, uh, it just kind of hit me. I think at the, sometimes you just have those movies that are like the right movie at the right time. And this was just like a complete, easy to watch lark. Like, yeah. like, I, I don't think I've ever said on this, sh- on digital noise ever. I don't think I've ever said the words, just turn your brain off. <laughs> but my brain must, I think my brain was already turned off. So when I watched this, I was like, yes, this is the movie for me. <laughs> I'm in this the mood the for, for this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know. I was, I was really exasperated with it at first. Like, okay, I, if, if this doesn't have anything to offer inside 20 minutes, I'm just going to turn it off and not review it. But it kept like having little things. It's like, oh, that's cute. Oh, that's kind of interesting. And by the end, I was like, it's not like it's good but it is definitely the move like a bad good movie where you're like okay i i enjoyed it despite myself and there's people who watch it go i don't understand what you could possibly find to enjoy in this like i don't know how to explain it to you 
there are weirdly a lot of bonus features on this weird little tiny film uh there's a commentary track with japanese film historian james harper who wrote flowers from hell the modern japanese horror film there's another commentary track with very well-known directors adam green and joe lynch who have at first just a fun time like they do like fake american like dubbing for it and stuff and are just sort of goofing around but eventually get really into it uh that uh, i i'm definitely going to go back and re- re-watch with them the whole thing i watched a little bit listened to a little bit of it but like what i heard i liked there's some short featurettes as well a new interview with the director for about four minutes um and talks about the influence of sam raimi and bruce campbell uh there's about two minutes of outtakes that have a lot of gore effects we didn't see in there a two-minute special effects video that shows how they did some of the stuff uh of course there's a severed hand sequence in here as you might imagine as well as two original trailers for this feature behind the scenes image gallery and a second image gallery of various promotional images and stills um there's trailers for some of the other visual vengeance titles because if you like this you might like slaughter day todd sheets Moonchild, and the necrophiles <laughs> i liked the necrophiles i don't know we're gonna have an interesting review when we get to that because it is also terrible but also kind of good um and then the packaging itself is cool because it's got a collectible folded mini poster in here. It's got an insert booklet with three pages of liner notes on the movies by the guy who wrote Horror Boobs, a vintage laminated video store rental card, and a sheet of video store rental stickers, and as well as reversible cover sleeve art with new uh, art on one side and the original Japanese home video art on the reverse. That's really great packaging. I love it. I was like is this a fake video card and then stickers I could put on things? Oh my God. I love these type of stickers. Uh, for the re- record, Necrophiles also had like little bonus cool shit that they shoved in there and stickers and stuff. And for those reasons, Chris, this total package reasons for oh those reasons, that's oh why bloody muscle bodybuilder in hell is my pick of the week over giant Wow. Over Sydney Portier films, I think our total package home video release out of everything that you handed me was was. Uh, let me get this title right again: Bloody Muscle Bodybuilder in Hell. Okay, I'll go with you on that. I mean, it's far from the best movie in this, but in terms of a full package experience, yeah, I kind of got to give it to you. This is the best release of it. You know, maybe if they had packed Giant with extras or something, <laughs> or if like the two Mister Tibbs films were were packaged with in the heat of the night are you, you telling know? me the guy that wrote movie boobs wouldn't write about giant <laughs> <laughs> all right bloody muscle bodybuilders bodybuilder in hell is our pick of the week i never <laughs> thought i'd say those words on this show uh thank you john for joining me I'll, i already handed you some movies i'll get you some more soon for the next time we get to team up and talk about crazy stuff um if you like this maybe i'll hand you other visual vengeance stuff in the future and see how you handle that We'll see. I'll end up like, no, I take it back. It's not my pick of the week. I'm sorry. (laughs) Thanks for listening, everybody.